0: A young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub.
1: Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. China has finally and significantly relaxed its COVID control policies, which had been a hallmark of Chinese society in the past three years. On Monday evening, China announced that it will cut quarantine requirement for inbound travelers starting January the 8th, 2023. Mandatory quarantine for international travelers to China, which has been in place for nearly three years, will be a thing of the past. Meanwhile, mass testing is no longer required. The virus is also downgraded from top category A infectious disease to now category B disease. While the resumption of freedom of movement and economic activities are causes for optimism in the long run, and people are breathing a huge sigh of relief, a dramatic rise in infection is also straining the country's public health system as we speak. What can be done at this point to address stress and shortages in face of mass infection in major Chinese cities? Is China about to see the end of the tunnel after a grueling three-year-long battle against COVID? I'm joined by Dr. Jin Dongyan, Clara and Lawrence Fork Professor in Precision Medicine at the School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Hong Kong. Dr. Jing, welcome to the Hub on CNN, and thank you for doing this. Uh, let me ask you, when, when China relaxes COVID policies, some experts said asymptomatic cases or mild cases are expected to account for, what, 90% of all infections? But in reality, many people feel that that is not the case, right? The majority of people said they either have fevers of up to 39 degrees or they have severe body aches and they have severe throat pain. Was there a miscommunication?
2: the major subset of people who are asymptomatic or have mild diseases, they, you, you will never know now because there is no nucleic test. There is no antigen test. So those who are asymptomatic or those who have mild symptoms, you it would be very difficult to identify them. So only the tip of the iceberg will emerge. Uh, And these are those who have slightly more severe symptoms. So these symptoms also as like a very uh, sore throat or something, but still uh, medically, it is still categorized as mild diseases. Actually, according to the uh, ninth version of the guidelines, it could even be categorized as uh, asymptomatic infection, which is not right. I don't agree that category, that um, uh, uh, pathics, but in reality, because uh, according to the guideline, you have to have CT imaging uh, evidence to diagnose a COVID. So nowadays, there is no CT imaging on most people. So these people could not be diagnosed and they could be categorized into asymptomatic uh, infection.
1: But uh, on the other hand, uh, Professor Jin, we do see images of people lining up at emergency sections of hospitals in major cities. Um, some people shared their ordeal, the waiting hours at fever clinics. Um, some complain that they simply cannot get essential medications such as ibuprofen or telenoid. Teleno- um, how much of a stress, how much of a strain is this wave of mass infection on China's public health system?
2: So this is actually well expected because this is an explosive outbreak or a tsunami. So millions of people have been infected. So so if everyone rushed to the hospital, then all the hospitals will collapse. So that's the reality. But it is not ideal that uh, even the anti-cold medicine were not available and people have just to line up. So actually 99% of those who are infected, they don't need to go to the hospitals. However, their mentality would still be to go to the hospitals. And that's actually an audio. And it's actually um, not unexpected, but that's the reality. So what uh, we can do better might be to promote the virtual virtual, uh, medicine, Mm -hmm. e-medicine, or to redirect these people to the community hospitals. Because uh, if everyone goes to the big hospitals, then all the big hospitals will collapse uh, immediately. So that's well expected. What we pay more attention to are the number of severe cases, particularly in the ICU and also uh, those those, uh, who need uh, hospitalization. These numbers are more important than the number of confirmed cases or the number of people who, who are infected.
1: Other than e-medicine, um, what are some of the other measures that public health officials and hospitals can do right now to deal with this cold, uh, sudden upsurge in COVID infections? So what the, would be your advice?
2: The most important thing to do, which uh, we have been advising the Chinese authority, that they should actually buy more Paxlovid from Pfizer because uh, Paxlovid is the best medicine so far that can save the lives of a lot of uh, people who are over 60 years old or have underlying diseases. Because only in these um, age group that are over 60 or have underlying diseases, the drug will have benefits. In those who are 49 to 64 years old, there is no benefit. So even if they stop the, the, the medicine, stop the job, the drug, uh, and it's useless to them, but you have to give this drug uh, at the first time. I mean, as soon as the person mm-hmm. is diagnosed, uh, either by RNA test or by antigen test.
1: Even before showing symptoms, right after yes. The, uh, diagnosis? Yes.
2: yes, only if given at that early time, the drug will be helpful. If when severe disease develops, then it's again useless. According to Israeli data, in the age group of over 65 years old, and those who have at least one underlying diseases, it reduces deaths by six uh, by 81%. Wow. So that's actually a drug a, a that can save lives. Yeah. So 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 that's why we have been telling them that they should stockpile a lot of these so that, and, and give them, I mean, they have to design a very good mechanism to distribute the drug because uh, if it goes to those who do not need the drug, it, it doesn't help, it's actually almost yeah. useless. There is no benefit.
1: Uh, talking about the elderly and the patients with chronic diseases or underlying diseases, um, Dr. Jian, they're more vulnerable to the virus, as you know, better than I do. Um, how can we protect the vulnerable groups uh, at this point?
2: So the most important thing again is to 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 try to decide. I mean, it's already a bit late, uh, as you said, that they have uh, uh, they have decided to distribute the drug uh, in the community uh, center, uh, but that's the right direction to go, and that will save a lot of life uh, because. Um, Also, it has already uh, passed, the the, the peak of the tsunami has already passed, but still there are a lot of people who might have severe diseases. And these people, you have to kind of compete with the virus to give them the drug uh, earlier, but not later. That will be um, the best time for the drug to work. And the second thing is actually to protect the vulnerable. And these include the general, uh, the public education, So there are a lot of people who are infected and these people should not get contact with the vulnerable people, the elderly people or those who have underlying diseases. So you just uh, have to avoid uh, 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 seeing them at least when you you are very, very infectious. So that's actually a very important message.
1: Talking about uh, vaccination, many people are debating right now if they should just Get infected and getting immunity towards Omicron, or should they go vaccinated or boosted? Uh, what would be your advice? So,
2: for those who have not been infected, uh, vaccination is the is the best option, and that will actually at least uh, protect you from getting severe disease or, or death. But you have to have at least three doses of the inactivated vaccine, or uh, for those vulnerable people, they actually need four doses if the third dose um, has already been over six months or even a year. So that's the most important message that we need to pass on to the general public, that only three doses or four doses can protect them better.
1: All right. And then um, when we talk about the efficacy of vaccines. Many people are skeptical. Um, they're skeptical of the efficacy of let's say their homemade domestic Chinese vaccines, Uh, they're like perhaps um, Western um, vaccines are more effective um, in that regard. How would you compare Chinese vaccines with their foreign counterparts?
2: The reality is that people only have um, access to the Chinese vaccines. So it is important that uh, they have three doses or four doses, and only these, these um, these uh, three or four doses could protect them against uh, severe disease or death. So the Chinese vaccines um, are indeed efficacious in protecting people against severe disease or death.
1: All right. Um, any final thoughts on the current situation with mass infection and uh, people are you know struggling against time to deal with the situation, Professor Jin.
2: So actually in Beijing, uh, the pig as I said, the pig has already passed. So the, the worst time has already, has already gone. However, uh, it is still very challenging uh, to reduce the severe cases or deaths. So that should be our first priority. And we should ratify all uh, the measures, including to distribute the uh, to to those in need, and also to uh, protect uh, the most vulnerable people. So these uh, would be the first priorities. And also in the hospitals, they should also mobilize um, all different um, uh, experts to try to save lives.
1: All right, Professor Jin Dongyan, thanks so much for your expertise. Thank you. Thank you. For the second half of the program, we'll be looking at China's economy. What will a Chinese economic rebound look like? Focus,
0: focus on what's relevant in China and the world. Bridge the Bridge the gap between what you know and what you want to know. This is The Hub.
1: Welcome back. As China eases COVID restrictions, the Chinese government once again made economic growth a top priority. Certain sectors of the Chinese economy have shown signs of picking up, but others are still lagging behind. How's China's economy faring? Barely a month since the country relaxes COVID policies. What will a recovery look like? I'm joined in Beijing by Liu Xia, founder and CEO of Cloud Hands Group, and also by Albert Keitel development economist specializing in East Asia at George Washington University. Welcome to both of you, welcome to the Hub on CGTN. So Lu Xia, let me start with you. Let's talk about China's economy and its economic outlook. Um, China's economy apparently took a major hit from prolonged pandemic and COVID prevention measures. Um, Since China relaxed its COVID policies about a month ago, uh, not even, any indication in your opinion that the Chinese economy is rebounding?
3: Well, people started to welcome the easing, but families and health system were unprepared for the surging in the infections. So people following you has to stay at home, out of work. Therefore, the mobility at a national level has not recovered. Yeah, when uh, we haven't seen the rebounding in the economy, the question comes to when we'll see the uh, rebounding. So I think it depends on two variables. Firstly, um, it depends on China's consecutive approaches or response to the coronavirus related issues. When the coronavirus related issues are under control, um, when the mobility at a national level starts to recover, we will see the pickup in the economy and the um, pickup in the stock market. Secondly, I think the government usually um, have some. Uh, policies to support the economic downturn and the financial market, say using the monetary policies, financial, uh, physical policies, and industrial policies, especially when the global market is in a recession or in a very slowly recovered pace. So I would be paying particular attention to China's government policies and approaches to support the economy recover um, and to stabilize the financial market.
1: Yeah, thanks for that analysis. Uh, Albert, talking about China's economic outlook um, the coming year, you once said that the year 2023 should be a rebound year. There's a lot of stimulus now in investment. Uh, What have you observed so far regarding the Chinese economy? Uh, What backs such optimism um, for
0: 2023? Well, the optimism comes because of the strength of the underlying Chinese economy even though we're now facing this really significant uncertainty around the COVID relaxation. And by rebounding, I'm looking back at 2020 and 2021. Uh, The bad quarter was the first quarter. And yet in the first quarter of 2021, there was 18% growth. So if they're just in calculating year on year growth, if you have uh, a very bad series of quarters in the previous year, and you you return to close to normal operation, there will be a very high growth rate because it has such a low base in the previous year. So that's the sense of rebounding. But it's premature to say when that would kick in. The official uh, statements are, particularly from Dr. Wu and others, is that it will be springtime, maybe April. I think we just don't know how the Waves will spread in the first half of next year, and so the rebound may not be till 2024, but the underlying economy, the strength of investment, it's over 40% of GDP, the work on infrastructure, uh, the the financial improvements that the government is making, they just announced 16 measures for the real estate sector to strengthen its financing, that process is going to underlie, rebound, I think, either in in 2023 or 2024, and the economy will come through.
1: Sure, there are so many variables uh, when it comes to predicting the the, the trajectory of the Chinese economy. Um, Liu Xia, the world of capital investment is a major barometer of the Chinese economy. Uh, Since China relaxes COVID policies, what sectors are being favored by investors?
3: Um, In the last three weeks, we we have seen the short-term heat in the um, financial market um, consecutively because people worried about the condition and the uh, surging in the infections. However, in the last three trading days, I've seen um, there is a big bounce in some sectors. Um, the big bounces are in the liquor making sector and educational sector. Um, the rebound in the liquor making sector is because the first group of people recovered from the COVID related um, unis, um, just started coming back to work, which is expected to uh, stimulate demand. And um, the educational sector has been supported by the authorities' document. That's the short-term reaction in the market. In the medium term, I think um, the sectors um, will be supported by the government, will be in the strategic industries, say the domestic substitution, um, digital economy and renewable energy. Um, In the last few years, the government used a combination of subsidies, tax card, and industrial policies to support the renewable energy industry. And I see these three strategic industries will be supported by the government continuously.
1: Yeah, it's very important um, to see what comes out of the Politburo meetings and all, all sorts of work um, meetings of the State Council. Professor Cato, you also noted that investment levels are quite high, particularly in terms of public investments. Uh, in what areas have, seen, have you seen um, you know, recovery gaining momentum? Uh, you talk about infrastructure. Uh, are there other sectors that you think are particularly um, impressive so far or got potential to um, stir and stimulate growth going forward?
0: Well, I, I think the electric vehicles are, are, are natural uh, and uh, artificial intelligence. I think, though, that for now, public investment has to be uh, the taking the lead. Uh, and the private investment, or what I call the for-profit investment, uh, state enterprises that are working for profit as well as private enterprises, will be looking to see what the demand is for their products. And that's why this counter-cyclical demand capability that China has developed over the recent decades uh, is in its prime right now when China needs it. Uh, so that that I think w- if you just think about what is the market calling for enterprises to do and how are they responding, that kind of misses what's happening right now, which is that there's a, a maybe a lull or a concern in the for-profit sectors in China about where are their markets going to be. Uh, this is particularly true of small enterprises that rely on clientele that can get out of their homes and aren't afraid of getting sick. That phase is likely to pass. The CDC and P of China is saying there'll be three ways, right? We're in one right now, uh, which is urban based. There'll be one when the rural workers return to their homes during Spring Festival. And then there'll be a third in early March or mid-March when those same rural workers come back into the cities. Uh, and there will be then a, a third surge. And after that, it should settle down. Uh, you know, with the mass infections and hopefully recovery coming out
1: soon. Um, Liu Xiao, you know, so much has been talked about uh, when it comes to a grain recovery, and grain finance is playing a key Parts um, in the process of a grain recovery, if anything, from your personal and professional experience, uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about the grain finance landscape in China. How has it progressed over the years, and especially in the past year, against the odds? And how do you see its potential um, post-COVID?
3: I see China has been working so hard to drive the economy from the uh, energy intensive or fossil fuel energy intensive industries uh, which needs the support of financial um, instruments and services. So I see the green finance is a critical tool um, in the green economy. Uh, Some companies will find um, green securitization, bring asset back the securities helpful as a financing tool. Green securitization is making an asset, a liquid asset, or series of liquid assets, transforming into a security. Um, with green bonds and green uh, asset-backed securities, we've seen in China, and the total value of this um, is more than uh, 400 billion uh, the first half of 2022, which picked up um, uh, more than 64 percent one year ago, making the total into slightly more than one trillion. So I think um, in the green finance world, um, uh, China's economy will be picked up quickly by those green financial instruments, green financial um, services.
1: Albert, according to trip.com, a Chinese travel website, a very popular website, from December the 7th through 18th, uh, flight bookings to the tropical island province of Hainan rose by nearly 70% from the month earlier. Of course, that was based on a very low base. And then Hainan hotel bookings last week rose by 20% from the week before. Um, when do you expect
0: the free movement of people, as indicated by the tourism sector, Well, I think this is understandable now that people can move freely. Some people are just not going to be worried about getting COVID, and that'll be uh, maybe a small share, but of a very big population. So there will be a huge uh, uptick in travel. And I think when the weather gets warmer in the springtime, we will see really a strong return of people traveling to summer places or places that they want to go back and see family or just international travel. I'm quite confident the weather will return to pre-COVID levels by the summertime. I'm not sure, but I would think certainly about 2024, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was uh, next next year in in the summertime. Albert, uh, you wrote a book about China and this economy. It's named China's
1: Economic Challenge, Unconventional Success. It was published recently. Um, uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about the main arguments and main findings of that book
0: well the main argument is that China has used a number of unconventional steps as far as the mainstream thinking in developed countries is concerned to really push its economy so that it's had forty fold growth in 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 forty years just a remarkable growth experience and because of that growth it's been able to reduce poverty at a at a dramatic pace uh, really enviable for poor countries around the world and the secret of this in my mind is first uh High investment rates, high share, above 40% in GDP, and counter-cyclical demand. So you need the supply push to increase capacity, which is the investment side. And then you need to manage demand. Uh, and you need to keep demand strong. You need to try to control inflation. And there are a series of capabilities that China has developed, uh, and which I describe in my Ch- China's Economic Challenge. Dual circulation uh, is another word for notice we're going to rely on domestic more, if not a... Uh, as much as as international demand. And there's a really interesting development right now. After the U.S. midterm elections, there seems to be a relaxation of international interest in China. We've seen the German uh, visitors coming. We saw the the EU commissioner president was here. Uh, The president of France is coming. We've just seen the Australian foreign minister visiting China. So there seems to be a bit of a thaw because before the U.S. midterm elections, China was a real domestic U.S. issue. And so now that uh, actually the Democratic Party has done so well, uh, that has eased a bit. And so that should also help on the international demand side. I mean, yes, there may be a recession, but the demand for Chinese products, manufactured products in particular, uh, has been pretty steady from the U.S. It fluctuates uh, in other parts of the world. So I, I'm really, i really I think that that approach uh, is multifaceted. It, it focuses on demand and the book describes mm-hmm. how. China's steps uh, to facilitate, particularly the financial sector. You don't just liberalize, you manage it strongly. There are a whole series of steps in the book that describe what China has done successfully.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, uh, geoeconomics is a very important way to look at uh, the economic patterns. And Liu Xia, finally, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, From the vantage point of an investor, how do you see the importance of international cooperation when it comes to fighting climate change? You know, we've been talking so much about climate change, but... How important is international cooperation in that regard?
3: Um, I think uh, in the recent years, especially this year and last year, China-US, China-EU's relationship and cooperation has been frozen for a while because of the um, political issues, geopolitical issues, um, the economic problems. Um, However, I think climate change um, issues or talks uh, keeps being the clue of the China-US, China-EU relationship. Uh, Secondly, I think there is so much China could learn from the US and EU on climate change issues. Say, for example, from the US, how to develop the renewable EV cars industries um, to make the uh, deployment increasing while protecting the rainforest. Uh, from EU. As EU has been the leader in the climate change um, uh, for the last two decades uh, in terms of ideas and actions, China could learn so much from EU's experiences. I believe China has the potential to uh, drive the um, economy up. especially from the old mode of the economy to the new mode of the green finance economy. Um, and I believe China will have the potential to be the engine of the global economy once again.
1: All right, thanks so much, Du and Professor Albert Kaida. That's all the time we have. Thank you all. Thank you both Thank so you, much. Wang and that will do it for this edition of The Hub on CGTN. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Mengguan in Beijing. Our news coverage continues. Bye and take care.